This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week's recommendation is Death in Florence, The Medici, Savonarola, and the Battle for the Soul of the Renaissance City by Paul Strathern. This book covers much of the ground we will explore over the next few episodes as we set the stage for the end of the High Renaissance. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the Renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, episode 15, Lorenzo the Magnificent. Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. And before we get started, I'd like to ask everyone who's listening to please consider writing a review for the podcast. It only takes a few minutes on iTunes, and reviews are one of the ways that iTunes uses to rank shows. And so writing a review helps this show become more visible to others. Also, don't forget about our trip to Italy coming up. You can find more information about that on therenaissancepodcast.com. Just click on the tour tab and you'll find everything you need to know there. I'm happy to be back. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. Uh, This show is somewhat of a miracle. In addition to the normal chaos of the holidays and busy travel schedule, I managed to come down with hand, foot, and mouth, which if you're not familiar with it, is an awful illness that infants get. I caught it from our infant. Oh, the joys of parenting. So it left me pretty much unable to work or do anything for almost two weeks. Happily, that's over and I'm back at it and again producing another podcast episode. So for this episode, we're going to look at Lorenzo de' Medici. Now, why Lorenzo de' Medici? He's not an artist. He's not a sculptor. He did dabble in some architecture and poetry, but... As you know from previous episodes, the Medici family was very influential and supportive of the arts. And with Lorenzo, we have a ruler who has come up in the full flowering of the Renaissance, who's fully embraced Renaissance ideas and humanism. And he's one of the most important patrons, other than his grandfather, Cosimo, of the Renaissance and Renaissance art and ideas. And again, like Cosimo... Most artists come through Lorenzo's palace at some point or another in their career. Now, what do we know about Lorenzo? He was strong. He was athletic. Uh, He's the son of Piero and Lucrezia Tornaboni, which the Tornaboni family has come up several times already. He's described as not being particularly attractive. His athleticism and his intellect seem to make up for this. And his father put a lot of 
responsibility on Lorenzo. And by the age of 15, he was already being sent on diplomatic missions. In 1466, when there was an armed revolt against Piero de' Medici by Soderini and Luca Pitti, Lorenzo played an integral part, and he discovered the roadblock that was looking for the Medici family, and he sent word to his father to take a different path into Florence. Upon hearing of the Medici's return to Florence, many of the conspirators lost their nerve. Pitti, in fact, went to the Medici palace to beg for mercy. Lorenzo himself led 1,000 horsemen, prepared to fight the conspirators who were amassing a small army in the city. And though it never really came to blows, the principal families were captured and they were banished from Florence. This left Piero in full control of the city. Piero dies when Lorenzo's about 20 years old. And Lorenzo never really craved the reins of power. In fact, it was his brother that was groomed to be the ruler of Florence. But Lorenzo was strong and energetic, even if he did have an ugly face, according to some, and a nasally voice. He was known for his humor, practical jokes, but most of all his kindness and his sympathy towards others. This made him much admired by his peers and by the people of Florence. Upon his father's death, he and his brother Giuliano ruled jointly. It doesn't often work, but for these two... They appeared to have a love and admiration for each other that allowed for this type of relationship and joint rule. As I said, Lorenzo never really craved power, and he spent much of his time studying Plato or composing verse. Around this time, he married Clarice Orsini, whose family had considerable estates and influence in Rome, as well as in Naples. Now, the marriage caused quite a bit of tension in Florence, for he was marrying someone outside of the city. This is twofold, because had he married someone within the city, that could have caused even more tension. But the Florentines looked upon Clarice as an outsider or a foreigner. During the early years of Lorenzo and Giuliano's reign, they maintained their alliance with the Duke of Milan, who is the psychopathic Galezzo Maria Sforza. Now, this is an important alliance for Florence, and as we progress, you'll see how this plays into future events. Shortly after the death of Piero, a rebellion broke out, and many of the former conspirators of 1466 hoped to seize the opportunity of having an unexperienced ruler in Florence. The conspirators seized the city of Prato nearby. Lorenzo quickly dispatched these exiles, but during this, another dispute arose in Volterra over mining contracts. Lorenzo was asked to arbitrate the dispute. The contract dispute involved three families from Florence, two from Volterra, and two from Siena. In the course of the deliberations, Lorenzo sided with the Volterans. However, they took this as an excuse to seize the mine by force. Riots ensued, and several of the leading members were killed. Lorenzo, infuriated by this, leads his army to put down the revolt. He had enlisted the Duke of Urbino as part of his army, and Urbino plundered Volterra against Lorenzo's orders. Because of this, Lorenzo is blamed for the atrocities, and this will sow the seeds of future conflict. In 1471, Francesco della Rovera was made Pope and became known as Pope Sixtus IV. This is the same Pope that built the Sistine Chapel, and his 
nephew will become Pope during Michelangelo's time. Now, Rivera was known for promoting his own family. In fact, he made six of his nephews cardinals. In promoting his family, he sought to buy the town of Imola, and he requested the Medici Bank in Rome raise 40,000 ducats for the purchase of the town for his nephew. The strategic town sits on a crossroads that Florence wished to possess for its own security. The Pope then turned to the Medici rivals, the Pazzi, for the loan. Sixtus continued to push closer to the Florentine frontier. Eventually, hostilities boiled over, and the Pope tries to oust Niccolo Vitelli from Sieta de Castello. Lorenzo then raises 6,000 men to defend Vitelli. Despite this, Vitelli still loses, but he's welcomed into Florence, which the Pope sees as an insult. Further straining the relations between the Pope and Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo managed to have his brother-in-law appointed as the Archbishop of Florence once the position became open, rather than another relative of the Pope. The Pope, however, appoints Francesco Saviati as Archbishop of Pisa, which is in Florentine territory. Lorenzo simply refuses to admit him into Florentine territory, so he sits in Rome, stewing and plotting against the Medici. During this time, Lorenzo maintains his alliances with Milan and France, but this further angers the Pope, who sees it as directed towards him. Tragedy, however, struck the careful alliance when the Duke of Milan was assassinated. If you remember from the Christmas episode, the Duke of Milan was assassinated on St. Stephen's Day, that's the day after Christmas, on his way to Mass. His son was only seven at the time, Therefore, his mother declared herself regent, and this leads to fighting amongst the Sforza family, who now cannot offer military support to Florence. The Pope's nephew, Guillermo Riario, the Archbishop of Pisa, Salviati, and the head of the rival banking family, Francesco di Pazzi, meet to hatch a plan to take power from the Medicis. They ultimately decide that the only way for them to have a clear path to power is for the death of the Medici brothers. The Pope insists that no one should be killed, but that they must take whatever means are necessary to remove the Medici from power. The conspirators deem it necessary that Lorenzo and Giuliano must die, and they are convinced that the Pope has given their blessing for their deaths. The initial plan is for Lorenzo to be invited to Rome, where he would be killed and his brother would be assassinated in Florence. However, Lorenzo declined this invitation. Raffaello Riario, the Pope's great-grandnephew, and a newly minted cardinal, would provide the diversion. His arrival to the territory near Florence would cause the Medici to host a feast where they would be off guard, hopefully. Both brothers would be together, for they both had to be eliminated at the same time. However, Giuliano had hurt his leg in an accident earlier in the day, and he could not attend, thus thwarting the plan. So the new plan was to kill Lorenzo and Giuliano as they attended Mass at Santa Maria del Fiore. Giuliano would be stabbed by Pazzi, and Lorenzo would be stabbed by Montesecchio, a mercenary employed by the Pazzi family, with his army just outside of Florence. Montesecco, a soldier, found the idea abhorrent, 
and he had grown to like Lorenzo. However, there were two priests who volunteered, and they were employed to dispatch Lorenzo. One was Antoni Maffi, a Volteran who hated Lorenzo for his suppression of the recent revolt, and Stefano de Bagnoni, the tutor for Jacopo Pazzi's illegitimate daughter. Both brothers would be struck at the sound of the sanctuary bell. The victims would have their eyes downcast in reverence, giving the assassins the opportunity to strike. Raffaele Riorio prepared to deliver mass in the cathedral, and he was escorted by Lorenzo. Giuliano, however, was nowhere to be seen. He had decided to stay behind because of his bad leg. Pazzi went back to retrieve him from the palace, and he limped toward the cathedral. Pazzi, making a joke about him putting on weight, noticed that Giuliano wore no sword. Unlike today, the churches of the Renaissance had no pews or seating. So Lorenzo and the other parishioners milled around the ambulatory, waiting mass. At the sound of the bell, the two priests grabbed Lorenzo. Lorenzo turned, tearing off his cloak and using it as a shield. He drew his sword and he slashed at the priest. He then jumped over the altar rail and headed for the sacristy where he and a small band of loyal companions barricaded themselves in. Giuliano, however, had a skull nearly split in two. Pazzi drove the dagger so hard that it went through Giuliano's body and punctured his own thigh. He lay on the floor of the cathedral bleeding with 19 wounds in all. Baroncelli, one of the conspirators and a mercenary leader as well, followed after Lorenzo, killing Francesco Nori, a faithful friend of Lorenzo, with just one blow as he passed by. The party in the Sacristi climbed into Della Robbia's choir loft through a passage that connected to the Sacristi. The two priests had escaped. Riario, however, stood in shock, dumbfounded at what had happened. Lorenzo was hurried out of the church and away to the Medici Palace. Meanwhile, the Archbishop Salviati made his way to the Sonoria along with his group of mercenaries. He managed to talk his way inside, something about a message from the Pope. And once inside the Sonoria, the Gonfalonieri became suspicious and he called the guards. The mercenaries tried to move but they were trapped inside the rooms, which were designed without interior latches, making them prisoners inside the Sonoria. The Florentines, hearing of the assassination attempt, joined the palace guard and began attacking the mercenaries. The leaders had ropes placed around their necks, and the Florentines hurled them out the Sonoria windows. The same fate awaited for the Archbishop Salviati and Francesco Pazzi. The two men were stripped, a rope placed around their neck, and they were flung out the windows of the Sonoria. The growing mob of Florentines went street to street seeking conspirators, but on their way they visited Lorenzo at the palace. They demanded to see him to know that he was alive, and he stepped out on the balcony, assuring them that it was a minor wound, but he begged them to resist vengeance and save their energies for the coming conflict that was likely to happen because of the day's events. Few associated with the conspirators escaped. Cardinal Raffaele Riario was rescued by Lorenzo himself. 
and he had him escorted from the city to safety. Raffaele Maffi, the brother of one of the priests, was also saved from the mob by Lorenzo, since it appeared that he had nothing at all to do with the assassination. The Pazzi family, however, had all of their property confiscated, and their names and their coat of arms were struck from the record of Florence forever. This incident marked a new role for Lorenzo. He was no longer the reluctant leader, the humanist philosopher. He is now the undisputed leader of Florence. And upon the burial of his brother, he takes on the mantle of his father and his grandfather. And he becomes the savior of Florence in the eyes of many Florentines. In Rome, Guillermo Riario, so infuriated at the failed assassination attempt, has the Florentine ambassador arrested. And he would have had him thrown in the dungeons of San Angelo had the Venetian and Milanese ambassadors not protested over the violation of diplomatic immunity. The Pope as well was infuriated by the failed attempt and the retribution that Lorenzo and the Florentines meted out to the conspirators. He therefore excommunicated Lorenzo and declared war on Florence and persuaded Naples to do the same. Lorenzo, for his part, appeals to the King of France, but help seems unlikely. Milan was in a state of turmoil since the murder of the Duke, so Florence stands alone against Naples and the Vatican. The Florentine bishops respond to all of this by excommunicating the Pope. Though the city itself was untouched by war, it does take a toll on Florence. The mercenary armies of Italy at this time had a strange habit of protracting wars out for their own financial gain. So very often, you had small conflicts with very few casualties, but they drug on for months and months. Lorenzo, seeing that Florence was headed towards economic ruin, resolved to seek peace with Naples. He advised the Sonoria that he would set sail for Naples and present himself to the king and offer himself that he might save the city. This heroic gesture, however, is not as foolhardy as it might seem. Lorenzo had ties to Naples, and he grew up with the king's sons, so he had good reason to believe that he might be welcomed in the court. After ten weeks, negotiations seemed to be going nowhere, and Lorenzo announced abruptly that he would be heading home. Well, just as abruptly, King Ferrante of Naples offered a peace treaty. And while not favorable to Florence, the war was over, and Florence maintained its sovereignty. Lorenzo returned home to a hero's welcome in 1480. Over the coming years, he would use every constitutional method to secure his power and his position as the de facto ruler of Florence. Never again would a major revolt challenge Lorenzo's rule during his lifetime. Francesco G. Cardini says of Lorenzo's growing power, quote, If Florence was to have a tyrant, she could never have found a better one or a more delightful one. And I think this sums up the Florentines' view of Lorenzo and his rule, and they were willing to accept an autocratic rule of someone who they considered just and noble as Lorenzo. The Pope, however, continued his hatred, even though the war was over and he could no longer continue it on his own. He refused to remove the excommunication order, and it wasn't until Italy was threatened with a Turkish invasion that he considered peace with Florence. With the new threat, 
Both sides agreed to mumble their apologies to each other and join forces to confront the Turks in southern Italy. There was finally peace among the Italian states, which Lorenzo did his utmost to maintain for the rest of his life. Upon the election of Pope Innocent, relations with the Vatican warmed. Lorenzo began to be looked upon as a trusted advisor to the Pope. So we've discussed how Lorenzo came to power and some of the interesting political struggles of the Renaissance, but let's discuss why he's so important for us and our exploration of Renaissance art. One of the things that Lorenzo was known for is his stable of artists. Among these, you have Filippo Lippi, Ghirlandaio, Botticelli, and, of course, Michelangelo, who was practically a son to Lorenzo. I will save the information on Michelangelo for the upcoming episode in a few weeks. But to briefly explain, Lorenzo founded a school to teach sculpture, and among his many pupils, he brought in Michelangelo. And this is how Michelangelo becomes a member of the Medici household, and much loved by Lorenzo. Lorenzo was far less wealthy than his grandfather, so he was not able to offer direct commissions as Cosimo did. But he acted more as a facilitator, putting the right artist and patrons together. And it was Lorenzo who recommended Ghirlandaio and Botticelli for the work in the Sistine Chapel. He also helped to arrange Verrocchio's work in Venice, and he possibly even recommended Leonardo to the Duke of Milan. Since Lorenzo was seen as the arbiter of, t- of good taste in the Renaissance, all these rulers, such as the Duke of Milan and the Doge of Venice, looked to Lorenzo and his recommendations. Lorenzo also continued to collect ancient sculptures from Rome, Greece, and Persia, and he expanded the Medici Library, sending copies of his manuscripts to libraries in Pisa and all over Italy. In fact, to improve relations with Pisa, who's also a client state like Volterra, he spent lavish amounts of money reviving their university in the hopes of quelling any future rebellion. Lorenzo also brought the best teachers of Greek to Florence, and students from all over Europe come to Florence to learn Greek. Now, his pursuits weren't limited to just collecting. He did compose poetry, and had he had more time, one can imagine what he might have done. He composed in the Tuscan dialect of Italian, and the poetry is considered very high quality. Despite being in his early 40s, Lorenzo was clearly dying. He would suffer from debilitating attacks of gout that would leave him unable to walk or move for weeks. Lorenzo was carried to his favorite villa at Poggia a Chiano, where he would read and admire the frescoes that he had commissioned Andrea del Sarto to paint. On April 5th, one of Florence's two lions was killed in a fight. And the same night, lightning struck the cathedral lantern, knocking one of the marble balls to the street. Lorenzo took this as an omen that his death was imminent. And three days later, he slipped into a coma. He would die later that same day. His body would be taken to San Marco, then on to San Lorenzo where he'd be buried next to his brother. Though he'd maintained peace throughout the last ten years of his life, clouds of war were brewing. 
A monk at San Marcos began preaching apocalyptic sermons that predicted the downfall of the Medicis and of Florence. Despite this, Lorenzo would call the monk to his deathbed to hear his confession and administer last rites. This monk was Savonarola. Join us next time as we explore the life of Savonarola, the mad monk of Florence, who had a tremendous influence on the art and the art world of Florence through his bonfires of the vanities 